Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you would, take your seats. We're going to jump right in. I have shared this each week as we've been going through this series that we are going to school today, and this is no different. So if you're a note taker, get your stuff ready so that you can write down um, the ideas. In week one of this series, we, got, uh, we learned how we arrived at our Bibles, the Bibles that we have, how we got our Bible. That was an important week. In week two, we learned that the Bible is inspired by God, but we also looked at what that actually means, right? Last week, we learned that the Bible is authoritative in many things, and the shocking thing or the challenging thing for some is that it is not authoritative in all things. There are things that are prescriptive in the Bible, but there are also things that are just descriptive uh, for us. And it's this idea, this, uh, this concept that makes us take the, the step we're going to take today. Today is all about one simple idea. And so if you're a note taker, here's what you want to write down. The Bible, although written for us, is not written to us. It was not written to us. The Bible, although written for us, was not written to us, nor was it written necessarily about us. Yes, the Bible talks about sinful humanity, and in that respect, you're all included. Um, But it wasn't even necessarily written about us. The story of David is the story of David, not you and the giant you have to slay in your life, okay? So please understand that. These are important truths that we need to come to. Uh, The faster we understand this principle that the Bible is written for us but not to us is the faster we can arrive at a proper interpretation of the text of Scripture. Um, we, we definitely need to get to the, the core of the Bible, and especially when we're dealing with a skeptical world around us. The longer we hold to beliefs or ideas that are not actually what the Bible is communicating, the more the world around us says, see, you believe all kinds of weird stuff. And so proper understanding of what is authoritative, what is prescriptive, and what is merely descriptive, these are all important things. When we understand that the Bible is for us, yet not to us, then and only then, then, church, will we begin to utilize the Bible properly? So quick question for you. How many of you would desire a practical application when you're learning from the Bible? You want practical application. You're like, listen, I love the stories of the Bible, but how do they apply to me? Or I love the teaching of the Bible, but I need it to hit home. I need it to be uh, mine. Well, this is true of most of us, right? I think all of us Uh, would say yes to that question. The most critical factor for the Bible's applicability, though, is to see what the Bible was saying to the people to whom it was originally written. We have to look at that first, right? And then, only then, will we start to discover parallels for our life if, and there's a big if here, if there are parallels at all to our day. So today, we're going to look at a few examples of this, but I want to begin by showing you that the Bible is, in fact, for us, not written to us, but it is for us. We don't need to lose sight of that beautiful truth. First, our beliefs and our behavior as Christians comes from the Bible. Amen? It has always been disturbing to me as a pastor and even just, uh, just a Christian, that some people want Christianity, but they often want Christianity without their Bibles. 
Uh, people try to push it off. It's, it's cumbersome. It's antiquated. It's old. It, it's, too, you know, it's too this. It's too that. They want, their, they want Christianity, but they don't want the Bible. The problem is everything we know about Christianity came from the Bible. Yes, there were people who lived these stories. Yes, there were people who originally wrote down the accounts, the original autographs. Yes, there were people who probably were eyewitnesses or at least contemporaries with those original writers who wrote down manuscripts and, and, and jotted down notes for them. Maybe they were their scribe, but uh, we are so far removed from it now, there's not one thing that we know because we talked to the original source. We know it because we learned it from the Bible, and the people that learned it from the Bible before us learned it from the Bible before them, and it just went back, back, and back, and back. So everything we know actually comes from the Bible. Second, the Bible is for us in that it provides us with a God-centered view of history. A God-centered view of history. Whether that's a creation idea uh, or a creation concept or whether that's God's warnings and judgments, his promises and their fulfillment or the very words of Jesus himself. We have that because why? We have the Bible and the Bible is for us. So, so we, need to, we need to remember that the treasure we have in all of these things is because we actually have a book, or 66, if you want to talk about it that way. Third, the Bible is for us in that it is used for training and transformation. How many of you want to be adequately equipped for every good work? Did you know the Bible tells you how you can do that? It tells you by listening and learning from it, right? The very inspired words. So it's useful for training and transformation, for molding us to reflect the image of God more accurately. I've mentioned this for a couple of weeks now, uh, quoting 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 in a passage from Ephesians 2, that God has created each and every one of us for good works, right? The good works of his kingdom. And he's told us in the scripture that the scripture itself is a means by which we get equipped for that good work. Okay? So, God's word is clearly for us for these reasons and many more, I would argue. But again, it's not written to us. This understanding is one of the most essential ideas to remember when you're questioning uh, why some commands seem to apply today and why some don't. They weren't written to you. That's why some of these don't apply. For more on that, though, I encourage you to go back. I don't, I don't care if you were here last week or if you watched online. I want you to go back and re-watch last week's message because the Bible and its authority is a very important subject. So this is, again, the Bible and its authority is what led us here. So what's the big deal about the Bible being written for us but not to us? Why does every Christian need to know this truth? Michael F. Byrd put this beautifully. He said this, When we read the Bible, we are entering into a historically and culturally distant world, and we must mind the gap. In the rush to make the Bible instantaneously relevant, we can inadvertently misuse it by not recognizing the specific situation of the authors and lazily pick up something that seems handy for us on a first read. In terms of Bible study, this is like browsing Wikipedia rather than spending a few hours in your local library. 
And y'all are guilty of it, aren't you? That's what I thought. Now look at this. I put it on the screen. Reading scripture for quick practical application and ignoring the social, historical, and cultural gap is like looking for instant gratification without the hard work of study. We need to know what the Bible says to those it actually was written to so that we can understand what might be for us. Please hear me, church. When we take this approach, this lazy approach, this instant gratification approach, we often read into the text something that we want it to say. How many of you know that? We read into the text things we want it to say. We often do this because we want the Bible to be written to us, but it's not. Or we seek to confirm our biases, our traditions, our ways of of doing life. We just simply were taught something, and then we go to the Bible to confirm it. This is not a good way to study. This, as Ethan pointed out in his devotion this morning, is what uh, scholars call eisegesis. You are reading a point into the text of Scripture. We need to be a people that exegete the Scripture, pull out of it what God is actually saying both to the original writers and what he might be saying for us today. The problem is that we often, uh, we often arrive at wrong conclusions, and the wrong conclusions we reach become ingrained in our churches and in our hearts. Like, they get deep within us. And then when somebody corrects that issue, we lose our flipping minds. We're like, who are you to tell me what the Bible actually says? This is where ideas like this... Uh, come from people say well the bible has many different meanings right it has layers to it it's spiritual and so it means to me something and it means to you something or people say well that's again it's just what it means to me answer no no you don't get to do that you're not allowed can you say i'm not allowed you're not allowed. It's not up to you to determine what the Bible was supposed to mean to you. There is a meaning, and the art or the, the, the school that we have to enter into is a school to study and find or, or mind, uh, mind that out of the text. Correcting these misapplications is like trying to tell someone who really can't sing after years of their mama telling them they can sing, that they can't sing. How many of you know that you will never get through? American Idol and all those competitions proved that, right? People come in, I've sung all my life. And then all of a sudden it sounds like a cat with its tail being pulled out, right? So it's really, really bad. Ignoring or not paying attention to the historical distance between the people to whom the Bible was written and you and me today is a serious issue. It requires a thorough understanding of words It requires a thorough understanding of the meanings in their context. It requires understanding cultural mores or customs. It's important that we know these things. Now, some people look at that and say, it's just too difficult. And we'll address that in a little bit. The difficulty of understanding the Bible is there, whether it was in English you understood or not. The difficulty is there because we are dealing with something that was given to us uh, by God. When Christians across denominations quote uh, or even claim passages out of their context, like, for example, Jeremiah 29, 11. You all know this passage. It's a common one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. 
We, as Christians, as faithful Christians, have a responsibility first to accept that this passage was written to someone else. Amen? Exiles, Jewish exiles, not Jerry Clust. Right? Important, just in case you were wondering, okay? So, Jewish exiles, first responsibility, know that it was written to them. After that, we have to translate the words that are used from context to context, just so that we can get a kind of an idea or a framework for what's happening. What is meant by the words plans or welfare? That's a term that has a specific political implication in our world. What about the word calamity or a future or hope? The next step, after you do find out the meanings of words culture to culture, is actually to discern what those words meant to them in that specific time frame, right? Next, if this passage, or if this principle, rather, was to be a universal principle, you must ask the question, why? You must prove that this principle is universal. How do we actually know God knows the plans he has for us? How do we know that he plans to prosper us and love us and and to give us a future? How do we know? And the answer can't be because I feel it. You may be right. Your feelings may be accurate, but you have to prove it because to a skeptical world, they're looking at the Bible and saying, it's just an old book. Throw it away. Not one piece of that was written to you. And they're right. But it was written for you. And this is important. So after you know that this is the case, then and only then can we begin to consider accepting something as a truth for us. But we're not done even then. After that, we can start reasoning together as to what kind of future God has planned for us. What kind of hope he has for us. What kind of welfare he is going to provide for his people. Right? All of that comes much, 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 much later. And we need the whole of God's word, I think, uh, to understand it. So with all of this in mind, we're going to take a look at some interesting examples. The first is about hospitality. And the other has a lot to do with um, how we speak about our brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's a little bit of gossip. There's a little bit of slander issue. And it's connected intimately to worship. So we're going to talk about those two examples. And after that, we're going to wrap it all up by talking about some tools to help you get started in what really is a grand process of biblical understanding and application. Okay? So hospitality. You guys ready? You guys ready? No? You don't sound ready. You ready? Please be hospitable to me right now. Are you ready? Okay, let's go with it. So we tend to think of hospitality as something we do for friends, something we do for relatives, or sometimes even fellow Christians. And what it usually boils down to is we invite them for a meal, we invite them for coffee, we do something like this. But is that, here's the question, but is that what the Bible refers to when it speaks of hospitality? The answer is sure, it can But that's definitely not all, right? Uh, Who is the recipient according to Scripture? Is it fellow believers or is it anybody and everybody? It's anybody and everybody, and we'll see that in just a second. Hospitality is so important that it was an explicit characteristic of an overseer or um, an elder within God's church. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and Titus 1, verse 8. They speak of hospitality being required. 
It's also an urgent command to be followed without complaint. How many of you think hospitality goes hand in hand with complaining? Not generally, right? But if you've ever been hospitable to some people. <laughs> anyway, okay, so moving on. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Listen to these words. The end of all things is near, therefore. You see the urgency? The end of all things is near, therefore what? Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. In other words, show hospitality, this is to the church, to one another, and do so without your grumbling. Do it cheerfully, just like you're supposed to give. Isn't that amazing, right? So cheerful and without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in, the serving, uh, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now here's where we begin to connect something that was written to the church back then, but we believe, I believe, is written for us. And why would I conclude that this would be written for us as a principle? Because of this statement, the idea that we are good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How many of you are recipients of the grace of God? How many of, the, of you then should be good stewards of that grace? You're not to hide it under a bushel, are you? You're not, to, you're not to store this away and not let anybody see it or experience it. So you and I are, in fact, it would appear, that we are people who are stewards of the manifold grace of God. So this is a passage, although not to us, it is a passage for us or a principle that's for us. But here's where this expression of God's grace, hospitality, begins to take on a much larger meaning as well as a level of seriousness that most of us have never been taught or we overlook. In the ancient world, hospitality was way more than showing grace to those close to you. It was something that you were supposed to do to all people. It included strangers. The Bible talks about taking care of the poor and the alien, and this was an expression of hospitality. You should think the Good Samaritan when you think of true hospitality. In Timothy's Ephesus, even widows were expected to show hospitality towards others. This is an important thing to keep in your mind. These were widows who were, who were on a list or could be on a list for being taken care of in the daily distribution of food and care. And yet those widows in their position to qualify for that assistance were to be hospitable to strangers. Listen to what 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 10 says. A widow is to be put on a list only if she is not less than 60 years old. Having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Showing hospitality to strangers. Now, I'm going to take a small uh, sidestep here to bring back uh, the series Paul, Women, and Wives. For those of you who read through the Bible and you see uh, requirements listed of someone, 
I want you to understand that the most important thing that you can do when you're reading the New Testament is filter it through the truth that was communicated in Galatians 5. And that is that we are a people who live according to the law of liberty. Amen? And not according to the law as we see it in Jewish history. Okay? And what that means to the Apostle Paul is, and what that meant to God was that we were a people who loved people and obeyed God from here. And we didn't need a whole big list of things in order to do it. How many of you have ever met people that are good rule keepers and bad Christians? How many of you are those people? Bob, thank you for being honest, Bob. How many of you have met somebody that is a very good Christian but makes a whole lot of mistakes? You better raise your hand to this one. How many are that person? Yeah, all y'all, all y'all, right? When it comes to the requirements that are given within the Bible, and I want you to parallel elder with a widow who needs assistance, be careful, be careful that you understand the lists are not exhaustive and these lists have to be understood in a very interesting way, almost like the Proverbs are understood. And that is guidelines of truth, okay? Why am I, why am I being a nitpick, uh, why am I nitpicking on this situation? Because listen to the requirements for a widow if she's going to be taken care of. First of all, if you're under 60 years old, we're not helping you. That sounds fun, right? She's been the wife of one man. I'm, I'm going to say something crazy here. Most women, when they become widowed, would never qualify for this requirement in our culture. Because we don't live in the same culture that they did. Listen to this one. They have a reputation of good works. Well, that's awesome. Sounds like a good one. Uh, if she has brought up children, what if, she, what if she hasn't? You just not take care of her, Right? She's brought up children. Why, why wouldn't you just let her children take care of her? But all these things say, if they don't qualify, don't take care of them. If she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, there's one I expect to see out of every woman 60 and older around here. Right? Start right here. Stop it, Jerry. Anyway, okay, start right. What is my, what is my point here? My point is if you go legalistic on this, just like people do with other requirements, you turn this into an impossible standard for some people. you just not supposed to care for these widows? Give me a break, right? You would never do this. This is where people uh, believe something that is quite absurd, in my opinion, okay? We have to know the Father's heart in the messages that are conveyed here. So really important things. Back to hospitality, though. The writer of Hebrews, after calling for the uh, continuation of brotherly love, also commands his readers to not neglect hospitality to the stranger. Listen to what he says. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. It seems that the writer of Hebrews is referring to an event that happened in Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2, which was Abraham actually entertaining angels. And it turns out he was also entertaining God himself. This command of hospitality toward the outsider was very serious. And we're about to get into the seriousness of it. And it just, it will boggle your mind, okay? 
So Genesis 18.20 is going to be on the screen. Look at this passage. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Okay, Nathan, why did you bring up Sodomites? Why did you bring up this situation and their sin? What's this have to do with hospitality? Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. What was their sin? Multifaceted. They had many sins. But we're going to actually let the Bible tell us what their problem was. It seems that this sin that they had, this key sin, pride and a lack of hospitality, triggered the abominations that they were then judged for. The prophet Ezekiel tells us, chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, look at what these words say. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Okay, here it comes. She and her daughters had arrogance, pride, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Wait a second, Ezekiel. We all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're, we're, dealing with, we're dealing with the sin of homosexuality. We're dealing with the sin of that. Yes, we are. But what God points out here is unbelievable. He says they were proud and they were inhospitable. Thus, because of that, they were haughty and committed abominations before God. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Did you know that Sodom and Gomorrah's problem was that they weren't hospitable. That's fascinating. God invites, this is Joshua Jip, he writes this. He says, God invites and demands the God, that God's people be a people of hospitality. So what's at stake? A church or individual that does not practice hospitality misunderstands the identity of the triune God and, as a result, the very meaning of Christian identity and life. You want to know why that's so important? Because that actually is the idea behind what it means to take the name of God in vain. Everybody in this room was raised that saying GD is taking the name of God in vain. Fine, don't say it. God's name isn't God, by the way, right? But the point is, it's, it's irreverent towards him. Taking the name of God in vain is to claim his name, I'm a Christian, but not look anything like it. And by the way, this is in the Ten Commandments. This is brutal stuff. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. So we do this all the time. We claim Christian, and then what do we do? We're inhospitable. We claim Christian, and we do whatever we please. Listen to the words of Rabbi Stephen S. Pierce. He's a, a Ph.D. rabbi scholar, a Jewish scholar. Lot was portrayed, he goes all the way back to Lot because we know Lot was in Sodom. He says, Lot was portrayed as both a solid citizen and a flawed human being. Amen to that one. He not only offered his virgin daughters to the rabble-rousers in order to protect his two guests, it's one of the more disturbing passages in the scripture, but also two further accounts document father-daughter incest, unholy unions with his daughters that, re that resulted in the birth of Moab. The tribe Moab, or the, the people Moab, the name means from father, disturbing as that is. He is the father of the Moabites today, the Bible says, and Ben-Ami, meaning son of my kin, he is the father of the Ammonites as well of today, Genesis 19.33-38. It is no wonder that the name of the ancient city of Sodom becomes synonymous with sexual perversion. We're all clear on it. No matter how many modern theologians want to argue against it, we're clear. There was a lot of sexual perversion going on there. Nevertheless, 
This is what the rabbi goes on to say. Nevertheless, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah must have been appreciably more heinous than Lot's contemptible behavior because he and his family were exempted from the punishment that befell all the other residents of those wicked cities. Have you ever read the Bible and saw these people get judged and this person gets out and you're like, what gives here, right? What was going on? Well, let's, let's try to understand what's going on. A further moral failure read into the limited available textual information was the refusal to extend a helping hand to those in need. Again, Ezekiel expressly says it. The Talmud imagined that the citizens of Sodom decreed death to anyone who would feed the poor. Listen to these two quotes. This is from the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 109b. Both of them are from that. A certain maiden gave some bread to a poor man hiding it in a pitcher. On the matter becoming known, they coated her with honey and placed her on the parapet of the wall, and the bees came and consumed her. Thus it is written in Genesis 18.20, the outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grave. That's crazy, isn't it? The Talmud further tells how the people of Sodom offered the appearance, but not the actuality, of hospitality to strangers. Look at, look at what the same Talmud says. Whenever a pauper, a poor person, uh, happened to come to them, each and every Sodomite would give him a dinar. That's a derivative of a denarius of Jesus' day, or a variation of that later. And before doing so, would write his name on the coin. And as per a prior agreement, the Sodomites would not offer the pauper bread. When the pauper eventually died of hunger, each and every Sodomite came back and took his coin. Wow. That's some hospitality there. Here's a coin. My name's on it. Don't worry. That's for later. Right? When you die. Okay? Although the Bible is not written to us, we can see that the principle of hospitality is clearly written for us, and yet the principle is much larger than learning hospitality tips from Martha Stewart or some Instagram guru who doesn't know what they're talking about. Hospitality in ancient times was intimately connected with the care of the poor and the foreigner. The church, you and I, therefore, have a responsibility to be hospitable. Not only that, but it's a responsibility that God clearly takes very seriously. Hospitality, guys. So the Bible is written for us. It's just not written to us. What we have to do to understand the principle in its right way is we actually have to understand its meaning to the people it was written to. So when we start to look at it that way, all of a sudden our minds go, oh, this isn't coffee and a, and a crumb cake. This is something way, way bigger. This is something where we're reaching out to the people that are often, uh, often the, the untouched in our culture. I wrote a song a long time ago that said, we can't expect to be the hope of this world if we won't touch this world. We won't, we won't even touch them. How in the world can we see them saved? The church should be the people who are not afraid of anybody in this world. Amen? We should be welcoming them in. We should be caring for them and showing them truth in every way possible. This is hospitality. This shouldn't be difficult, though. 
when you remember that we are a people of love, love for God, love for one another, love and prayer for those who persecute and hate us, hospitality is clearly for us, right? So the next time somebody comes to you and says, let's start ranking sin at this high order, and let's talk about sexual sins, and let's talk about murder, and let's talk about all these hot-button things, remember that God was, God was highly displeased with pride and a lack of hospitality when it came to Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of us just think, ah, it's not that big of a deal. I'll get it next time. No, we are called to this because why? This is the heart he's remade inside of us. We're a new people of love. Okay, let's get to making it right. This is the worship and gossip part of the sermon. Hold on to your britches. There's not one person in this room that gets out of this unscathed. Oh, our next example comes from a passage in Matthew chapter 5. Here is that passage, void of its immediate context. Even then, you'll see some really cool truths in it, okay? Here's what it says. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now first, I hope you notice that this is in the context of sacrificial offerings, and the reason I bring that up is because we don't consider that authoritative, and Jesus himself was the one who said it. Just keep that in your mind, okay? We're, we're rightly dividing God's word, and this is a really fun story to, to tell us a point. Second, the offering, although important, comes as a secondary matter of importance. What was the most important thing? reconciliation with one's brother. Psalm 133 comes to mind for me. How good and pleasing it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. This is what God wants. Amen? Amen? Very important stuff. Third, and often overlooked, this whole change of plans occurs because the one presenting the sacrifice remembers that a brother has something against him. Not that he has something against his brother. It's that he knows his brother has something against him. Although it doesn't say who caused the offense, it, it seems to imply that fixing division among brothers ranks way higher in priority than sacrifice, than worship. But that shouldn't surprise you, guys. God said as much in Hosea 6.6, 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But God, you're the one who instituted those things. Yes, but if we're a people who are loyal and know God, we don't have much need for the sacrifices. Amen? Isn't that, isn't that cool? So this is the point of this. Immediate application. Some obscure lesson about unity. Maybe. Maybe. This is just us reading it through an American lens. How about having a pure heart for worship to matter? Again, maybe. Maybe you should have a pure heart before you go to God in your worship. But if the Bible is for us, we got to dig a bit deeper, right? Because we want to know what it actually means. We want to know what it meant to them, and then we need to unfold that plan to see how it's for us. Let's ask ourselves uh, what the immediate context is first, right? And if that context changes what we previously thought. We're going to start at verse 21. Check this out. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Gulp. Right? Therefore, in light of that is what we should just read into that. In light of that, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, your brother is angry with you, your brother has said something about you, or you have done something vice versa, right? This is the context. If that has happened, and there, remember, your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. What use is your offering if you are good for hell? This is hard stuff, right? First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. But it doesn't stop there, church. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. Don't think Jesus just took a squirrel moment here, right? Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. You can have an opponent at law and he can be your brother in Christ, okay? Your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Do you see the parallels? It's like you're judged before the court, the Supreme Court, thrown into hell. It's the same kind of concept. This step is going on here, right? Truly I say to you, you will not come out of it until you have paid up the last cent. In its context, this appears to be a legal matter and has an immediate connection with the attitude of a person's heart. Then we see that the verse is sandwiched between what appears to be a case of libel and the journey to court, right? The instruction warns against anger and potentially this idea of libel and character attacks that the anger brings about. If you're angry with somebody, what are you likely to say? You good for nothing. You fool. Do you understand what's happening here? Okay. This is all attached together, right? Then Jesus makes an application to the worshiper. If this is you, you need to fix this. If this is a brother who's against you, get it all right before worship is even going to matter. Now, if we zoom out beyond that, it's fascinating because Jesus has just told the people to be salt in the world, to be light in the world, to let their righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees. You will not have a righteousness surpassing that of the Pharisees if you are a person who hates your brother. You are wrong, right? It appears that this kind of attack on another's character was and is, church, it is common. And it's a direct violation of the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? Jesus has also included the Ten Commandments in this very passage. He said it's not going to pass away or disappear until it's fulfilled. By the way, the Ninth Commandment, which is what I'm referring to, is not thou shalt not lie. Doesn't matter what your Sunday school teacher taught told you the command is don't bear false witness against your brother is that a lie yeah sure but it's a specific one bearing false witness against your brother why is this important because your gossip your libel against somebody your hatred and anger towards a brother sets you out of who God wants you to be so what business do you have coming and worshiping 
Church, listen to me. There is a lot of people, and I would argue there's a lot of people in this building right now that have said so many things about other people for so long, you have no actual clue that God is displeased with it. You, you think it's simple. You think it's simple. You're like, eh, he or she, they're just a jerk. They're just this, they're just that. What sense is this? God says, you're actually letting anger run you. It's leading to all this libel. And he, Jesus himself says, put your daggone worship away and fix the problem. Uh-oh. All of those things that you've said about your other brother, all those things that you've said about your sister, all those things that you've said about Barney. <laughs> anyway, all those things that you've said. I'm under no delusion that people say bad things about Barney. I know who they say it about. Anyway, so, but the point that I'm getting at is those are, those are problems. They inhibit worship, right? Or they hinder worship, right? I guess it's the same thing. So, attacking someone's character is a serious issue. Read in this way, here's what Jesus is saying. Don't come with your offering until you've gone and made right the character assassination that you've committed against someone else. Uh-oh. That's, that's different from what you heard when you were growing up, right? You heard, you should walk into church, you should do your Hail Marys, you should say, Lord, please forgive me for my sins this week, and now my worship is great. God says, reconcile. God says, go make it right. Church, if we are really going to see and understand the Bible in its context and take it seriously, we will, we will be exponentially less likely to gossip. Can I get an amen? Why? Because your worship is nonsense right now. And you don't think it matters. You're just like, hey, I, just, I honestly just think he's a jerk. Fix it. Fix it. This is a problem, right? We will not enter into conversations in which someone's character is being discussed. We'll actually say, you know what? I love my brother, and if you have an issue with them, you should go to them one-on-one. -on -one. How many of you know that that's the way it should be? Gossip was always explained to me growing up as, as uh, talking to someone who is neither part of the problem nor the solution. If you're talking to somebody who is not the problem and somebody who can't solve the problem... You're just gossiping. And you're running into this category, which Jesus says is a big, 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 big problem, right? Rightly dividing God's word is a lot of questioning. But actually, actually doing it is, for me, for me, it is the greatest peace in my life because I actually know what I'm supposed to do instead of guessing at it, right? How many of you hate guessing at this stuff? I hate guessing at it. I want to know what it means. I want to know why it means that. That's, that's where I'm at. So a couple other examples that you can go back and look at. The entire Paul Women and Wives series. This type of questioning was what led us to the Paul Women and Wives, ser Wives series. The series can be found on YouTube, but the point was we have to dig in and we have to allow ourselves to answer to... Uh, uh, allow ourselves the, the kind of taboo freedom to ask questions about the text of Scripture and say, does it really mean that? Does it really mean that? Are women not allowed to? Are, are only men supposed to? Whatever it is, right? We need to be allowed to do that. The next one that I would encourage you to do 
it was back on, um, I believe it was back on the 9th, Jacob Dolezal did his devotion on Proverbs 22.6, the train up your child in the way they should go. And Jacob did a master class in teaching in this devotional. It's just a fantastic thing. Um, so I would encourage you to look at it because what he did was the very principle I'm teaching you. He's dividing the, the word of God rightly and he arrives at one of the most beautiful and freeing truths about that uh, proverb for us. So I encourage you to go back and look at that. And by the way, I cannot say enough about Jacob Dolezal. The kid is the kid. Uh, the young man is absolutely amazing. And uh, I love the fact, I love the fact that the next generation uh, has potential strong preachers and teachers like Jacob. I think he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, so does this uh, way of interpreting the Bible sound difficult? It can, right? Does it sound overwhelming? Yep, it can, right? I'm not going to lie. It can be. It's it's messes with me a lot because sometimes you just want to mail it in. You just want to get there and you go, ah, it says exactly what so-and-so said and I'm just going to go with that. It requires us leaving instant gratification behind and realizing that there's a lot of work ahead. But instead of looking at it as an overwhelming task, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to reframe studying the Bible and understanding it as a journey and a lifestyle, not a task, Okay. A journey and a lifestyle. This is the essence of what we call the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Listen to the words of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You know how often you should be talking about it? All the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The ancient Jews saw learning and study as a lifestyle in which God's word was always on their mind. And discussing it and debating it and trying to argue through what it meant, it was a constant activity. They talked about it as they went about their everyday lives, relaxing at home, walking down the road. They consumed big ideas in small increments. And you need to do the same. Big ideas in small increments. Now we have the responsibility of asking ourselves this question. How can we take the big ideas of God and his word and his, uh, and his exceptions for our lives and learn it in small increments? There's many tools for you. And here's the list of tools. So if you're a note taker, I want you to write these down. Number one. Number one, two, and three, I suppose. Study Bibles, study software, and commentaries exist for a reason. <laughs> they are the work of people who have done a lot of this study so that you don't have to be a scholar every time you read the Bible. <laughs> Can I get an amen on that one? Like this is really important because it does get overwhelming and it is a daunting task. And I don't suggest that everybody goes to seminary just so that you can read the Bible. But you need to trust people who have gone to seminary 
and who teach for that purpose, right? So really go there. So you've got study Bibles, you've got study software, you've got commentary. A couple of things that you could do. I, I, there's just about any study Bible out there that is put out, listen to me, that is put out through the NIV, I believe is a trustworthy study Bible because these, these uh, scholars often view things through an independent lens. The second you get into certain translations, you will notice bents of theology and ideas. If you're going to read the ESV and get an ESV study Bible, you are going to have a reformed turn. If you're going to read the NASB and you're going to read its study Bible, you're going to have certain bents towards that as well. Okay. If you read the New King James study Bibles, you are going to have turns and twists in certain theological directions. But for some reason, the scholars who try to put together the NIV go, here's a bunch of ways of seeing it, right? So I, I encourage you, don't treat commentaries like they're inspired by God, okay? <laughs> they're, they're great, they're great, but just don't treat them that way. Second, Bible software. How many of you have a Bible app on your phone, right? How many of you have the Bible app called Blue Letter Bible? Blue Letter Bible. If you don't, you should download it. Blue Letter Bible gives you the ability to tap on a word. You can find its original meaning. You can find uh, there is plenty of commentaries within the app that you can look through, you can read, you can understand and study those things. It's free, 100% free. It's an amazing, amazing tool. So you have study software, and then again, there are just full-size commentaries. And these can get really expensive, but if you have a thing that you want to study, I say loosen up on the purse strings, right? Buy, buy the commentary. It'd be really awesome, right? They have been developed for a reason. Even with these tools, study can still seem intimidating, okay? So I want to encourage you to do something else, and that is God, I want to encourage you with something and then give you another tool. God doesn't expect you to have it all together, amen? You're on a journey, this isn't, a not, this isn't an instant gratification piece. No instant gratification, since that's the way reading the Bible is, also means no instant perfection. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to get it all right right now. We will be learning until we die. This is why reframing the work of study into a lifestyle, I believe, is important. Okay, And this is why grace is there for each and every one of us. Giving ourselves and others the grace necessary to ask questions, to change previously held views uh, that have always been held is very important, right? We have generations of texts in which Christians before us were trying to figure out the Bible. We should listen to them, right? No one has it 100% down. Okay, so you've got that truth. Uh, the next tool is this. You should learn in community. You should learn in community. If you hide your way, hide yourself away in the uh, closet of your own mind, you will develop stupid ideas that no one will ever be able to tell you are stupid. It's just that simple, right? You'll come up with ideas and you'll be like, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden you'll read a book, right? And somebody will be like, nope, didn't happen. It's not a good idea to hold, right? You should study in community. You know who else studied in community? The Jews. 
the early Christians. They studied in community. They, they agreed with each other. They disagreed with each other. They did that horrible, horrible four-letter word. They argued. It's not four letters, but it seems like people have made it into that. They argued. They discussed. They came to consensus. They didn't come to consensus. It all happened, okay? And it's still happening to this day. But they were iron sharpening iron. And this type of lifestyle is something we need to embrace. So, Next week, we're going to ask this question, should we take the Bible literally? Should we take the Bible literally? 